0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, your host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Aviva Leggett about her new book, Get Real and Get In, How to Get Into the College of Your Dreams by Being Your Authentic Self. Welcome
1: to the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Gessler. It's great to be here.
0: It is wonderful to have you here. I am so happy that we get to talk about this book. I think it's something that is a perennial you know, subject of interest for students, but um, we are taping in fall of 2021, and a lot of students have not had access to uh, the kind of on-campus counseling services about choosing a school or, or making sure they have all their ducks in a row. So I think this is particularly uh, timely for our listeners. Before we delve into the book, however, I wonder if you would tell us a bit about yourself, please.
1: Of course. So, the reason I wrote my book is really all about me. Uh, so, growing up as a kid, I moved around a lot. And in high school, uh, I had the fortune of moving to Princeton, New Jersey, which is where my high school, Princeton High School, is located. The problem with it was that I was not prepared for the level of rigor. And also it was a big culture shock for me going to a high achieving high school when I'd come from a a community that um, was not so college oriented. So I put a lot of pressure on myself as a result. And in my my senior year, right before applications were due, I got pneumonia uh, because I had been putting so much pressure on myself ever since I would say sophomore year. And that was the year why I decided I want to go to NYU and I'm going to do what it takes to get there. So I did all of the things. I went to all the tours. I met people from NYU. I you know banged down doors, talked to people about my interest. Um, and while my application process and my lack of preparation did create a situation where things were tumultuous, what it provided in positive was the opportunity for me to figure out who I was, and what I wanted on the journey to college. And that's why I wrote my book, Get Real and Get In. So since high school, I've had a chance to work in higher education. After going to NYU, I came down to Penn and Philadelphia for my master's and doctorate in the field of higher education. While I was here in Philadelphia, I worked at the Wharton School, where I sat on the undergraduate and transfer admissions committee and oversaw pre-college programs. So that gave me a window into how students are evaluated and selected. Uh, So when I was finishing up my doctorate at Penn, I had a choice. I could have stayed at Wharton working or tried something else. And I had my whole high school experience, college process in my back pocket, on my shoulder, staying with me all these years later. And I felt compelled to go in that direction. So that's when I decided to become an independent consultant, helping students and families with the college process. I've been doing that since 2014. And since starting my practice, I've had a chance to write for Forbes and uh, teach as well at Penn. And um, now I have my book uh, with St. Martin's Press, Get Real and Get In. And I feel fortunate to have been able to come full circle uh, to something that started when I was such a young person.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I, i I wonder if we could unpack that a little bit. Um, you do share your own journey very candidly in the book while making it focused on advice for others. It's a, it's a nice balance between the two of the, the personal and the universal. If we could circle back a bit to um, your own determination to get into college, um, you pretty quickly focused on just one school and became rather strategic about how you could bring that about. And you had a particular major in mind. And then it, in one sense, it totally worked out. You got there, you got in. And then while you were there, you had a very different journey than, than what you expected. Can you take us back to freshman year around about your second week?
1: Sure. So I got to NYU. And as I write in my book, um, the dream school wasn't so dreamy when I got there. So the second week of my freshman year at NYU was the month of September, and it was the year of 2001. And that's when September 11th happened. So starting off life in college on September 11th, two miles away from the Twin Towers, is not a recommended journey for anybody and not a journey I'd wish on anybody. And I especially feel for all the young people today who have had to start college, to be in college, to be in high school during these COVID times, um, it's a different sensation just having lived through both experiences because I feel that COVID is like a slow burn, whereas 9-11 was like a smack in the face. It was a very sudden trauma for myself as well as for others affected by it in their own way. So it's, it's really hard when you're trying to start out your life in um, such a difficult environment. Um, But I do think that, you know, my really what I emphasize in my book is that, you know, you can go through COVID, you can be a 911, but no matter what happens to you or who you are, you have to be creative, authentic and resilient to become who you're supposed to be. You can let your emotions in, but you can't let them drive every single thing that you do. And so what I try to emphasize in the book is that uh, students really need to tap into who they are and what they want and to be aware of all the different external influences which could take them off their course.
0: And you had another life-changing event sophomore year. Your, Your boyfriend broke up with you and you say that that's when you started going to therapy, and it's something that you recommend for people who are open to that idea as a way of becoming authentic and figuring out who you are and what you really want, what your dreams and goals are. Can you talk a little bit about how important it is to really get to know yourself?
1: Absolutely. So yes, as I recommend in the book, therapy is a great thing. It's been very helpful to me for many years. And I think that therapy is a is a, It's not the only tool, but the great thing about therapy is that It is designed really to help you dig deeply and deeply into what motivates you. And what can be surprising is that there are a lot of things that motivate us to make decisions. We may think that certain decisions are rational um, or the right thing to do, but we're not always our own best judge of that. So by knowing how our decision systems work, we know if we're making the best decision for us or not. And of course, not all decisions are completely logical and they shouldn't be, but we need to understand the logic behind our decisions so that we can make them with intentionality.
0: And you talk in the book about how success does not go in a straight line. So in many ways for students who are choosing a college, success is getting in. Uh, Often they have a set major in mind and graduating with that degree and getting a job specifically in that field and for you, by senior year, you realized what you had gone there to study was not what you wanted to do, and, and that ultimately led to your masters and your in your current life path. Can you talk a little bit about how success for you was not a straight line, but it was about being authentic?
1: Absolutely. So the reason why I so I studied music business, which I didn't mention in my brief intro, um, I chose music business because I had a love of the theater. And as I write in my book, embarrassingly, I had an obsession with Hanson, which was a very popular band when I was growing up. And they're a band of three brothers. Um, and I went to a number of their different events and appearances. And it got me very fascinated with the behind the scenes, the inner workings of like, how did that promo tour get set up? And what went into selecting that album? and And what songs made it to the CD and all of that? So I got really curious about that and made me intrigued by this field. And I sought to learn more about it after choosing NYU sophomore year, because the music business part of NYU was a huge part of my decision for NYU. When I got to NYU though, and I actually, I mean, freshman year, I went out of the gate. I just said, I just need to get any internship because I'm in New York, I should get an internship. So luckily being in New York, literally, you know, I don't want to say quite around the corner from me, but within a 10 minute walk, I could get to billboard magazine, which was the first place I interned as a freshman. And it was, you know, nothing against billboard or any, or any other company that I may mention, but I mean, billboard, I wasn't doing anything really, you know, intellectually stimulating. I had come from a community where, you know, people were always talking about, you know, life philosophy and goals and dreams and, um, there was quite an intellectual culture that I had been in and the music business, not that people aren't smart, but people didn't necessarily want to talk about the same things that I did. And it was also a very male dominated field. So there weren't you know, a lot of people that I saw myself looking up to or that I saw myself in other people. So as I had these internships and I was doing work that was, you know, grunt work, and I also wasn't building the connections that I would have ideally liked to make, I just was feeling, you know, turned off from being in the music business. Also, it was a difficult time to be in the music business because there was a transition at that point from um, physical music to digital music. So that was that was creating a lot of upheaval, of course. But what I found myself more drawn to at the time was getting involved in my college activities. So when I got to college, as I as you mentioned, my boyfriend broke up with me, but that was actually worked out very well, because it forced me to get out of my bubble, and to look at other things that I could do and friends I could meet, right. So I started getting involved in these activities. And then I really enjoyed it. And I became a leader in different clubs and activities on campus, um, in my music business program, There were some challenges in the program, and I was part of the founding team of student ambassadors, and we worked to create changes in the program, like a change to the curriculum. We created um, a departmental-wide concert to enhance the community. So I really felt like what, what I had done on campus, especially with that Music Business Ambassador Board, really made a difference in the lives of the people in the program, and it definitely made a difference in my life. So that's what inspired me to want to pursue higher education, because Essentially, what higher education professionals do is that they work in colleges in different capacities um, to improve life on campus in some way. So there are a lot of jobs you can get in the field. And so I figured I'll get this master's in in higher ed, which I knew was kind of the standard entry level degree to enter this field. And that's what drew me to come down to Penn. Um, I didn't know that I would want to work in admissions at that point in time. It was an interest of mine. But I didn't have any interest in kind of the, the grind of admissions, like the travel to different colleges, the sales presentations, and so on. So I was able, luckily, through, um, through the job I had at Wharton to be part of the admissions process on the committee um, as the academic liaison to Wharton and to be able to see how applications are selected and also to oversee selection myself for our pre-college programs um, without that, that extra travel and all of that. So I ended up finding my way to a job that was a really good fit for me. But you know, ultimately, when I was at the end of my tenure at Wharton, I felt like I had made the impact that I could make in the role that I had and that I had learned what I had wanted to. And I felt very strongly compelled towards this admissions piece, given my own experiences and how I had discovered my journey as a student, both in high school and in college.
0: And. You talk in the book about how that time spent reading people's applications and being part of the decisions about who gets in and who doesn't gave you a lot of insight into what's essentially bad advice that students get. Um, they're sort of dissuaded from being authentic and developing genuine passions and instead sort of creating this incredibly impressive checklist. And you say that actually is counterproductive, trying to be impressive because it creates something you call the impressiveness paradox. Can you explain to us why we want to avoid getting trapped at that impressiveness paradox?
1: Sure, so essentially the impressiveness paradox is the belief that if you're trying really hard to fit yourself to a specific mold, then you're actually not going to be very impressive at all. So for example, if you want to go to XYZ top tier university, and you have a friend who goes there and you simply try to copy what they did and make it your own, that's actually a terrible strategy. Rather, what you should do is figure out what are the things that inspire you that you're passionate about and then find ways to maximize and leverage those ahead of your application process. And then ultimately when you apply, you're going to have your own set of unique goals and circumstances to share versus trying to guess what admissions wants based on a couple people you know that got in.
0: And in that process, you might change which schools you think you want to apply to.
1: Absolutely, that's true. And I think that people are scared of disqualifying themselves of the schools that they think are the schools for them, because they, you know, prioritize the name over themselves and what they would actually gain from that experience. So um, I, you know, obviously growing up in Princeton and attending elite colleges, I definitely recognize and, and feel the benefit of those colleges. But I don't hold those colleges as like, if you don't go to an elite college, you're going to have a terrible life. And a lot of people I meet have some sort of version of that story where I have to go to this college. Otherwise, you know, It's not worth it. Or what can I do with this? I'm just going to waste money and time. Uh, so it definitely is important to be intentional about your goals and what you want to get out of college before you go because it is a huge investment. It is high stakes. And so I understand that belief that I have to go to the top to make this worth it. But you know, maybe you push off college for a couple of years if you're not sure, or maybe you go to a different college that has the exact program that prepares you for the exact kind of work that you want to be doing afterwards. Even if it's not that name brand, it's the right name brand to help you enter into whatever you're looking to go into. So, you know, they're just my book really is hoping to show, you know, through the journeys of all these different leaders, through my own journey, through my clients' stories and practical wisdom that, you know, there is a path for everybody and that the path for you is one that you have to blaze yourself.
0: And you say that really explicitly in the book. You say, don't apply somewhere for other people's expectations. Um, And you encourage students not to create a perfect plan. Instead, you tell them to be clear on their values and goals. So how is getting intentional about your values and goals better for you than trying to create a perfect plan?
1: That's a really good question. So I think it's both and in a way, right? So we don't wanna not have any plan or any ideas of what we wanna do, right? Because if we're just focused on figuring out our values, then we may not actually accomplish anything, right? So if we just keep digging and reflecting, we may be avoiding trying something that would help us to enhance our understanding of those values and goals. Um, so it's a bit of both, you know, in, in terms of the college strategy, the college process, the truth is you only have four years in high school and you have to make the most of them. Um, and at the same time, you can't overload yourself at the expense of understanding what's really important in all of
0: this. And you encourage people to have, uh, sort of a dual mindset, if you will it's important to have focus and it's important to have flexibility. You say uh, in the book, set goals and prepare for them not to work out. And you encourage people to be able to make adjustments and be flexible. So how do people stay very focused? In your case, you were pretty laser focused if I'm reading the book correctly on getting into NYU. How did you also have a flexibility and, a, and an idea that you may need to make adjustments?
1: Well, the truth is that at that time, I did not have that um, foresight or wisdom at all. Um, at the time, I was laser focused at NYU for, n- I don't want to say like, no good reason, there were good reasons for me to focus on NYU. But I wish I had been more flexible and really understood what that was about at the time. And one of the things that it was about, which I briefly mentioned in my book, but I just kind of footnote it, is that my father was very sick um, when I was in high school and unfortunately he has a chronic illness and it, you know, it keeps going, it keeps going even to this day. Um, but it became more acute when I was in high school. And so that really, I think, drove me at the time to dive into things that could help me be excited for my future. And so NYU, I think for me, just happened to be that thing that seemed like the right thing to focus on that would help me improve my circumstances and improve myself as I was looking to, you know, build a better life, right, after high school. So I think now I have the hindsight of understanding that and what the role of NYU was for me. So what I'm trying to do here for kids is to say, you know, give them the big picture that I didn't have at the time. I did not have somebody telling me this stuff to help me be flexible and help me think through that. I think though, as I've matured and adjusted, I have been more flexible in my goals. So I'll give you the example of more recent with my book. So I sort of, it was almost like an NYU mentality where I, um, I went to a literary conference and I met with, one publisher and several agents, and the publisher was my current publisher, St. Martin's Press. And I just had a really great feeling about St. Martin's Press. I reached out to the person who I met with at the conference, and we kept in touch over the course of a couple of years. And what I said to myself was, I would really like to sign with St. Martin's Press, but if that doesn't work out, I'm going to look into other options, and I'm going to let it be what it needs to be. So I am that person who does choose kind of my favorite thing and tries to pursue that. But nowadays, I have more wisdom to know that I need to have at least a backup plan and not just say give up on my first choice because of my backup plan, but to play out my first choice and be resolved with the effort that I put in that if I have to move on that I've made the efforts that I wanted to make on it.
0: And you touched on that in the introduction. You say admission to NYU and any other successes I've had through the years have come because of hard work and luck. There is no secret formula. But one of the threads through the book and through our conversation here is the importance of trusting your gut. Can you talk about how people learn to trust their gut and why you encourage all the students you work with to develop that skill?
1: Yes, um, that's a great question. Um, And I would say there is no magic formula. At the same time, if I look at all the stories in the book, it's really creativity, authenticity, and resilience that are the best drivers for people to make these decisions, even if they're not perfect. Now, could you repeat your question for me one more time? Because I wanted to mention that about the secret formula. You're talking about trusting your gut, right? And and- yes,
0: I'm glad that you outlined a bit of the secret formula. I think in the book you were urging us not to believe there's a secret formula, as in there isn't an actual secret checklist the IVs have that they're not telling you, um, and that some things are going to take a little bit of luck on top of the hard work. But one of the things you you urge people to develop is their gut intuition, this sense they can follow. You talk about how all animals have it, including humans. And then it's a source of wisdom that um, often high schoolers haven't been encouraged to develop. They've been encouraged to listen to this person telling them what to do and to learn to perform exactly how this test is set up for them to perform. And those things are, as you say, useful. You have to do certain things to, to get your application together. But at the same time, to figure out life choices, you have to be able to follow your gut. Right. Can you talk right. to us about why you think that's so important? You outline quite a bit of that in the book.
1: Sure. So the gut is essentially what, what we want to be using when we're figuring out what our key decisions are for our lives. So we don't want to be relying on relatives, the media, peers to highlight or, or to reinforce our sense of self-worth and to reinforce our goals, we really want to be relying on what's inside of us in order to put forward the most authentic. And I would say, if you're thinking about a risk of regret, the risk of regret of a decision that's based on your gut versus one that was based on somebody else's gut for you, that is the way to do it. So I talk about the book about regrets that people have on their deathbed. And one of those is that they didn't listen to themselves enough, that they cared too much about what other people thought. So before you get to your deathbed, and you're a young person, why don't you try doing that now, instead of waiting until you're old enough to be wise and know that that was the wrong way to go?
0: You also offer uh, students some common sense uh, advice for how they're going to get through their senior year and get those applications together. You you talk in the book about how you, you ended up with pneumonia. You were ill and trying to get all of this done. And so you've encouraged people not to do what you did. Um, and instead, you tell them to get sleep, take care of their body, limit social media, lean into friendships. And you also offer a lot of wisdom throughout the book about not judging yourself, uh, about encouraging yourself, and surrounding yourself with people who have your back and who are rooting for you no matter what. Can you talk about sort of these foundational things you need to do in order to be able to get those applications in and to be well enough you know, to, to do the things you want to do?
1: Right. So it's a delicate balance because you know in this college journey one of the biggest challenges that students I know experience is time and priority management. Um, you know students have a lot of homework they have demands on their time perhaps from family or extracurriculars uh, or other um, commitments that they may have and it's not I guess again it's it's not a secret formula right in terms of what is the right balance but Having a system to help you prioritize and to help you manage your time is going to go a long way in preparing you for the college process so that you can get enough sleep. So, for example, the summer before senior year, you are um, more than welcome and invited to do a fun activity that summer if you want to do a program or something like that. But you don't want to overload yourself the summer before senior year because that is a good opportunity to take stock of your application goals, to work on some materials, to organize your process, and give yourself time to think and to be creative. I talk in the book about having white space on your calendar. And so that's essentially unstructured time when you can do what you want, even if it's not productive in, in terms of a, you know, a literal sense, even if it's not productive, if it's just going for a walk or um, just sort of using the time the way you want to and need to use it, uh, that will help you go a long way to that time and priority management. And then really, once you have that plan of what you're going to do, then it's just a matter of trusting it and trusting your gut on it and executing on what you need to do amidst all the commitments that
0: you have. And you talk in the book about uh, one of the benefits of students doing some of the exercises that you outline in the book and really writing about their needs and who they are is that if you have health concerns, if you have an IEP, if you have uh, family concerns, financial concerns, targeting a school that's known to be able to work with those specific things is essential. You also talk about um, how your people are out there. And if you've been in a community that's not accepting, finding a college community very intentionally that you know has a record of being accepting is really important. Can you talk about some of those things?
1: Yes. Um, And what you're speaking to, for me, partially goes into this idea of how do we find out what colleges we want to go to? and. In the book, I describe a very specific way that students can go about it in terms of independent research. The other piece of the independent research is talking with people who are going to the college, who are teaching at the college, or who are affiliated with the college in some way. Maybe they're alumni, maybe they're staff members, and so on. Um, All of these conversations that you will set up they, it may feel very uncomfortable to set up these conversations, but they will really help you to figure out, do you like this kind of environment? Do, is this the kind of place where you feel you belong and that you could find opportunities that excite you and suit you? So all of these steps, the independent research as well as the conversations, really help you, the student, to paint a picture of what your life would be like at this college Um, versus relying on a brochure, which are, you know, of course getting out of date these days. Um, Or I would say an info session from admissions where they're going to give you the general sales presentation of here are all the benefits and features of our college rather than for you, what are the exact kinds of resources you would take advantage of and what do those resources look like? So let's say, for example, if you're a student and you're a writer, I would recommend tapping into the writer's house or writing resource center at these colleges to find out what kind of programs they have. They may have programs for high school students. They may have certain incubators or intensives that they run for their college students. Um, they may have just peer support groups. And so it's it's good to learn what the minuscule things are within the minuscule resources that, that you would actually take advantage of as a student rather than rely on rankings, the overall presentation that the school is making, and so on.
0: One of the things I really appreciated in the book was in the section called Know Your Needs on page 77, you have a list of things that you ask prospective students to to risk at, to list as either non-negotiable, important, semi-important, or unimportant. And when people ask me how I chose my college, one of the things I said is, well, it had a pet policy. You could have a pet in the dorm. And it was surrounded by nature and water. And I couldn't imagine getting through school without both of those things. I knew that because I was determined to learn, I would make the most of my education anywhere, but I didn't think I could be happy anywhere. So people have found that to be a rather strange answer. And yet that's listed on your, uh, your list is, do you need to be near nature and have outdoor activities? And do you want to be a long distance from your current home. And I really did. I wanted to go to college. Um, and so, this whole list here, how did you develop it?
1: Well, really, it's based on my students I've worked with, the kinds of things that they've said. I've never had anybody mention the pet policy. So, that was one I clearly missed on this list. Um, but that's a really cool and interesting one. Um, but, you know, essentially, people have to choose colleges um on these um on these kinds of criteria and somebody may think, oh, this is superficial, it's in nature, but you know, that is important to you, right? And and having access to those outdoor activities, to hiking, perhaps skiing and um anything that you may want to do. And and some people really thrive on being near um, nature and its beauty, right? And they feel better when they're around it. So um, people may dismiss their own needs and not really think about them or think that they, they're trivial and they really should just go for the best academic experience. But this is a really key piece to narrowing down your list is knowing your needs and what kinds of environments you thrive in before you get into the aspects that I was just talking about with researching and relationships you have to go through a process of narrowing it down to what you don't like and what you really like and is a non-negotiable for you.
0: And one of the other things I loved about your book is I um, I didn't really do any of the checklists for getting into college. I um, They just didn't sound like me at all. And I felt really confused by what so many of the students in my honors classes cohorts were doing. I would say to them, well, But is that a language you really want to learn? Is that something that you're going to use? And they would say, no, but I have to have it for my applications. Can you talk about why you dissuade people from doing the activities that they feel they have to have instead of doing the things that are important to them?
1: Absolutely. So on the subject of academics, I will say that there is some, um, if you research particular colleges, they may have specific requirements about how many years of Spanish you need, for example, not Spanish specifically, but a language. So definitely check out those requirements in terms of your academic program. But extracurricularly, there are no specific requirements. A lot of people believe that they need to um, you know, do a certain number of community service hours to be competitive, and that's not correct. Um, in fact, I'll say, because you said there's no language requirement here that that's bullshit because (laughs) basically if you are volunteering just for the hours, like you're kind of, you know, you're kind of fooling yourself. You're kind of faking yourself because why are you wasting your time doing something that has no meaning or value to you that you're doing to get into college? Um, wouldn't you rather spend your time doing something that you enjoy That would also help other people in some way. Um, So what I like to talk about, and unfortunately, I hadn't come up with this term um, ahead of the book, but I talk about helping kids develop their college admissions X factor. And that stands for experience, expertise, and exponential impact. And essentially what you want to do if you're looking to develop yourself competitively for college is you want to move from experience so simply knowing what something is to developing expertise in that thing so let's just use an academic subject for example let's use anthropology you want to develop expertise in one aspect of anthropology so let's say you visit a coffee shop um, every day for a week and then you write up a paper on that and you publish it that's expertise then you want to achieve exponential impact. So let's say at that coffee shop, you actually learned through your observations that they were, um, that the baristas there were prioritizing um, male patrons over female patrons when they were taking the line. So there were like maybe two lines, but maybe they didn't um, use those lines as like a, like an alternating. Maybe they just took the man when he was the first in line. Right. So, over a period of time, you may have observed that. So you don't, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, call the papers and call out that coffee shop. But I would say like, that's an interesting study. That could be not only a paper, but perhaps that's something that you could write a series of articles about obviously not, you know, to any specific person or business, but to really um, underscore the, the cultural dynamics of these kinds of things and, um, you can also collaborate with a professor on a paper like this. Um, I've had students pitch to professors to um, get research internships, and they can work with them on on papers and get those papers published in an academic journal. I've had other students who have written books. So I talk about in this book about one of my students who decided to write a book after an inter- after developing an interest in writing. Um, and so that's the idea of that exponential impact is like you're learning how to do something well, like write or conduct anthropologic research, but you're also finding a way to generate positive return and to generate value in the world through that expertise. And so that's what I love helping students to develop. And there's no one right way to develop exponential impact for every person, but every person can find a way to develop expertise and create an exponential impact in their own way.
0: I love how you explain that. I think my earlier example was rather clumsy. The person I was thinking of specifically had learned an additional foreign language, specifically Mm. for a school she wanted to get into. And then when she didn't get into it, was extremely angry and said, well, I wasted all of that time. Mm. And um, those are the kinds of things I think you want to help people avoid. And those are the things I remember being very puzzled about in high school, because there is no guarantee any particular school is going to take you. You do give a few caveats, you know, if, if your legacy, if, if there's a sizable donation that can be made, there are possibly things that will tip it. But overall, for the vast majority of us, there's no guarantee um, that a school will take us um, or that when we get there, we'll be happy. What we wanted when we were 17 may not work out very well for us when we're 20. Um, and one of the things I tried to avoid in high school was deliberately taking on an extracurricular because we did already have language requirements as part of the high school itself, but that using extracurriculars such as three or four extra foreign languages, um, using that time for something that I didn't want to do, rather, like you said, becoming really involved in something that mattered to me and then seeing where it goes. Um, Can you talk a bit about um, the benefits of, of that mindset?
1: Of the mindset specifically to define your own journey outside of um what people expect yes right so the benefit is again it's this idea of you know you don't want to live life with regrets you don't want to make choices based on what you think you should do you want to make choices based on things that you want to do and obviously everything in life that you want to do you can't do all the time So I would never recommend, for example, and this is an issue that a lot of kids have and a lot of parents tell me about, you don't want to play video games all day, right? Unless you're doing that to become a competitive expert video game player and you're creating a platform for video games. um, That's, you know, that's one thing. But for most kids, video games is an escape from reality. It's not reality. And if you don't take the opportunity to figure out what you want to do besides that escaped reality, then you're not going to be able to figure out your goals, you're going to have other people figure out your goals for you. And you're going to be living a life of someone else's design that's not yours. Um, As far as I know, we only have this life and no one can be sure of what happens um, after we live and we may as well live life on our terms. And according to our true values and beliefs.
0: And you remind us in the book that our life will amount to more than where we went to college. And you also give some statistics about transferring. Can you talk about um, what happens when students realize that maybe the dream needs to change?
1: Absolutely. So. Um, I would never encourage people to go to college and say, well, I can always transfer because it's it's a really big financial risk, right, to go to a college to potentially lose time and to transfer. That said, if your plan isn't working out in some way, then you may need to change it or you may need to abandon the plan. And so transfer can be an option and also changing majors can be an option. I would encourage students, if they can, find a way to make their current college work, whether by changing a major or changing who they hang out with at the college, um, that that could be an easier way to sort of redefine their experience rather than transferring. Um, That said, transfer is always an option. Taking a year off from college is an option. I know a lot of kids I've worked with, did take a year off um, this past year or at least a semester off just to kind of recalibrate and do an internship and do something a little bit different. And there's nothing wrong with that. So the important thing is that you find what decision makes the most sense for you given your circumstances and what you need.
0: And you say that to use what happens in life, whether it's positive or negative, to fuel our next endeavor. So you're saying your first line of advice for students is to change up how they're handling their their current college. And one of the things that you mentioned for your own journey at NYU was you not only changed what you thought you were going to do after college, but you got into all new activities, you met new people, and you started focusing on who has your back um, and who you really want to be around. Can you talk a bit about those personal decisions ultimately enhancing your academic life at school?
1: Absolutely. So I definitely got a lot happier at NYU. Obviously freshman year was, I don't know if it was an anomaly. It was not only anomaly for um, having 9-11, but I think just it was a rough adjustment regardless of 9-11. I didn't know what to do getting to a big school. What I learned though is that at, at any big school, you have to find your niche, you have to find your people. So I was able to do that through getting involved with the Jewish organization on campus. Um, It's called the Bronfman Center at NYU. At other campuses, it's called Hillel. And that was really helpful because I was able to meet a lot of new friends. I also was able to make friends through my clubs and activities, especially the ambassador board to be able to work with people in my program um, on a project of our interest to improve our lives together. So that that was also another great outlet for me to meet people. There were other activities I did that I enjoyed, but I wouldn't say I found my people as much. Oh, the other activity I, I enjoyed a lot that I don't think I mentioned in the book was I became a part of my residence life uh, governance board. And so there I got to meet some people as well and get close with other people. And that makes sense, because that was like the higher ed kind of stuff that I ended up getting into later, um, you know, versus another activity I had where I was planning out concerts, which I enjoyed planning concerts, but the people on the in the club with me were not necessarily my people either. So, you know, the clubs and activities piece, it's, it's really interesting for me, if I look back on it, the clubs and activities, I enjoyed the most were the ones that are the most related to my career today. um, Whereas the ones that that weren't, um, is not what I'm doing now. So it's interesting, because for me, it was really a combination of the types of people who were there and the work I was doing as well.
0: There's so much more to the book than we'll have time to talk about today. There's a whole second half of the book. Uh, The part two is called College and Beyond. And there's a lot of information in the book that really gives an inside view of what the admissions board is looking for and how well they do at spotting what's not authentic, at circling back to the early example of the person who learned a language just because she thought it impressed that particular college and then didn't get in. After reading your book, it brought back that old memory, and I thought, well, maybe they could tell that this was not an authentic interest, that it was just meant to be impressive. And that then fell into this impressiveness paradox that admission officers are exhausted by. Can, in the few minutes we have left, can you talk about the importance of authenticity for what comes through in the application itself? We've talked about becoming authentic yourself, really knowing yourself, getting your values figured out using those to target what schools to apply to. but can you give us your wisdom from the other side of the desk where you're reading the application and, and what comes through to you as truly authentic?
1: Absolutely. And so it's it's really interesting. So if you think about any kind of job application or presentation that you're making, you always have to keep in mind that you know who you are is a very complicated thing. You can't capture who you are in a 650-word essay, which is the length of the essay that every student has to submit for almost every college. So almost every college has an essay requirement, and the essay requirement is about 650 words. So as authentic as you can be before the application, it's really important that you figure out how to present yourself for the application um, in a way that makes sense to the audience. So when you're speaking with somebody, whether it's uh, a podcast host or um, a another student or an adult, you have to think about who is reading this in order to make your message come across effectively. And that's where my advice that we discussed earlier can be really helpful. When you do the college research, and when you talk to people at the college, you can get a real inside view into that culture and into what the college is looking for. And if you can't write your application for your audience, it may not come across the way you intend it to. And unfortunately, admissions officers are, um, you know, for better, for worse, very judgy people. So they will see what you wrote and they will be very quick to write you off unless you have a very personalized approach to this application process. Um, especially at these highly selective universities when, you know, they don't have to take your application if it's not really speaking to um, the values of that school. You know, you have, you know, maybe perfect grades and a perfect test score, but the fit isn't clear. So um, definitely before you apply, prepare by being authentic and then talk to somebody. And I would say multiple people at the college so that you can understand how to authentically present yourself strategically to that audience that will be reading the application.
0: What do you hope this episode sparks for
1: listeners? I hope that this episode sparks for listeners the belief that college admissions does not have to be a box checking exercise where we mindlessly do achievement oriented things to with the hopes, but no guarantees of getting to a specific end goal. Rather, I hope you use this conversation as an opportunity to think through who you are, what you want, and what journey is right for you.
0: Thank you so much for being here today and telling us about your book, Get Real and Get In, How to Get Into the College of Your Dreams by Being Your Authentic Self. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and we've been talking with Dr. Aviva Leggett today. This is The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.